Hello and welcome to the Creative Mornings Sheffield podcast. Creative Mornings is a breakfast lecture series for the creative community. Every month, in cities all over the world, the creative and curious come together to drink fancy coffee, eat a range of breakfast-related treats, and listen to a talk by someone excellent. Creative Mornings Sheffield is the Sheffield chapter, organised by Penny Lee. Each event is documented through pictures, video, and this very podcast. I'm Ian Broom, and this episode features Lindsay Green, co-founder of Frankly Green and Web, a digital agency working with cultural organisations all over the world to design products, experiences, and services that integrate digital and physical elements. This is a talk about needing and looking for the right questions, not the right answers. The global theme for this event was curiosity. You're about to hear Lindsay's talk in full, but first, some short sponsor messages. Partners for this Creative Morning Sheffield talk include Sheffield Institute of Art, HLM, Rich Wells, Ashton Moran, and Very Meta. Go to creativemornings.com slash sponsor if you'd like to sponsor a future talk. Creative Mornings is supported globally by MailChimp, Shutterstock, and Wix. If you want to listen to the Creative Mornings global podcast, head to creativemornings.com slash podcast. Thank you to uh, just like to say thank you to Penny for inviting me to talk today. I'd like to thank uh, and also not thank to, uh, right now uh, Catherine for suggesting that maybe I should talk. Um, <laughs> and also my colleagues Alice and Webb, so uh, aka Frankie Green and Webb. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Alison's really inputted into this talk in terms of what kinds of things we should be covering. And Annie, who's been handling the handling objects over there. Uh, she's uh, my colleague too. And finally, my husband here, Johnny, uh, he's listened to this talk probably about 12 times. So um, uh, thanks for his patience and notes. Um, so um, Annie, oh, she just stuck some cake in her mouth. <laughs> um, can I just ask you, uh, you've got people at the back there looking at the objects that we've brought in. Do you tell us any of the uh, hypotheses or any of the insights from that? Yeah, there are a lot of cheese-related guesses. Um, cheese-related tools? Okay. Yeah. We had pastry cutting or handle. Someone did say that one of the objects that we were actually practiced pieces with was Okay. Lots of different stuff. Lots, but most of the were yeah, interesting. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what they are just yet. So if you want a chance at the end of the talk to go and have a look, you can do. Um, but that uh, kind of activity is one that's uh, commonly used in people uh, for people studying material culture. And the idea is that you take observations and look at um, different things to try and just give them meaning and understand. And it's something, you, well, obviously, I work in museums and galleries, uh, and it's a, 
kind of activity that's quite often done there. They'll have a handling uh, set of objects that you can go in and work with and look at and try to investigate and understand what they are. But there was an also a different uh, experience going on that, and that was kind of inviting curiosity, an invitation to go over the white gloves, the tissue paper, Annie physically dragging people towards them. There's a, a strong invitation to kind of pique your curiosity. And um, there's something, I have to kind of acknowledge this, there is something very meta about kind of talking to people who are curious enough to get up at 8 uh, and get in for 8.30 in the morning about something to then tell them what curiosity is and how it works. So I kind of feel like you might be good practitioners already, but this might be a chance to reflect on what that looks like. But curiosity in of itself is kind of a basic mode. It's kind of like thirst or hunger. It's one of those things that as human beings we do intrinsically. Um, and it's, kind of, it's part of that idea of uh, part of our evolution kind of keep being curious about things. But some of you will have been asked to go over there and thought, there's no way I'm putting on white gloves and I feel like an idiot. There's some of you that will have looked at those objects and thought, you don't even need to ask me twice and run over and started playing with them. Different people's reaction in, in those circumstances, that curiosity, is, um, is being driven by different things. It's not always easy to be curious. The experience or the things themselves may not actually pique your interest. They may not be novel enough. They may not be spectacular enough. They may not be interesting enough or related to you. <laughs> so... Um, uh, we created Frank Green and Webb uh, about nine, eight years ago now. Um, and uh, Alice and I have been working with museums and cultural organisations. I'm going to probably use the terms museums rather than the word cultural organisations because it's a mouthful. But that's what I mean when I'm talking about them. So we've been working with museums uh, and galleries for a long, long time before that. But we've started to uh, recognise that basically museums started to need support in terms of facilitating to people to actively engage. It had been an issue all along, but we started to see people more open to that idea. And there's a real value to that, the idea that uh, we as human beings with this intrinsic curiosity, there is a place to go and work and, and exercise that curiosity. And um, the idea of active engagement is something that that brings us well-being. It's something that uh, inspires us to be creative and solve problems, but it's also something that helps us understand other people and culture, which um, I'm guessing right now is something that we could all be doing a lot more. But that has always been a challenge. And this kind of came home to me back in 2016. We were working with the National Gallery of London, and they just had some new branding well, they were reshaping their branding and thinking about what that meant to the audience. And they wanted to implement that uh, branding and look about how that translated through to the physical experience, what that actually meant and felt like when people were in the space. And so uh, the ambition and the challenge of kind of, uh, of actually encouraging and inviting curiosity actually came through how much of a challenge this has always been for museums. Back in the 1800s, the National Gallery was started because, um, well, there was A, the realisation that the UK had no National Gallery, and lots of the other European countries did, and we didn't feel too pleased about that. But also, there was uh, 
a trans movement to be more civic, to bring together uh, and give people more access to education and to give people more access and opportunity to... Um, and so <laughs> the bullshit sound has gone up. Okay, uh, so uh, the, so the idea that basically um, the the National Gallery uh, was kind of set up with the, the the aspiration to improve people's lives. Actually, the location that it sat in and Trafalgar Square. To the west, you had rich, rich London, and believe it or not, to the east, you had very, very poor London. And it was specifically sat there to act, give access to these two audiences. And basically, the idea was that all classes would be accepted. And the aspiration was that with free access to fine art, we would all become better people. We would become uh, more improved. And basically, that happened. If you imagine that during that period, like we're so used to visuals around us, we look at this room in itself. But actually, in the 80, late 1800s, that kind of image, uh, images weren't as available. It, to have images was a really, uh, access to images was a really privileged thing. So they opened the doors and people turned up. But you can see where the challenge lies from that. One of my favorite stories in the Gallery, and I'll squeeze it in whenever I can. But basically, the challenge was that people were not as actively engaged in the art as the, as the director and curators and the people who found their posts. And my favorite, uh, my favorite quote is from the director at that time, who basically uh, walked into the space one day, and, well, regularly, and found picnic blankets with people eating meat and pounds and drinking gin in the National Gallery. And there was this moment where they, uh, he talks about being incredibly disappointed that people weren't as engaged in the art as people thought they, they should be. And they started to bring in a series of rules that would stop piloting and ginger and cake. <laughs> I'm still hoping they're there today. Um, <laughs> so um, it wasn't seen as appropriate. And there was a certain type of curiosity that you were meant to have as you walked around these museums. There's a should. You should be doing this and you shouldn't be doing it. And to a degree, museums are a complex place. For most people, they're an entertaining place, a place to go at the weekends and relax and see something that's beautiful and, and see beautiful things. But actually, there's also, an, um, most of the research that we do, we recognize that there's an, an underlying aspiration there for something that's a new discovery, a new experience, a new chance to, to learn or understand something. But this isn't a space that we're designing that's a, a hospital or a where everything has to be immediate, we're not saving lives, but we have to create delight, but we have to make it useful. That level of complexity is the thing that kind of attracts me to it, I'll be honest. But um, kind of my confession is that this talk isn't really just about museums, you might, might be pleased to hear, that actually my feeling is that when we're working and we're observing people, um, trying to be curious or, or experiencing curiosity and we're designing those spaces, it gives us an idea of the ways that we can facilitate that into our own work or lives. That idea that how can we make best art and best use of our curiosity. Because I don't know about you, I'm like the number one person for getting my nose down into something, um, you know, and like two hours later, you've lost two hours. You've, you've, you've heard lots of different stuff. It's been really, really interesting. But as a creative person and a business owner, that idea that you've lost two hours, 
on your budget and your schedule can be kind of terrifying. And one of the things that we constantly have been doing is trying to kind of put into shape practices and processes that will allow us to effectively use our QST. And that kind of really is what I'm talking about in the museum space, because people are short of time, money, and energy when they go to those places. So one of the things that we're working on is how can we make sure that they get the best out of their experience in terms of those things, that positive moment of joy. And so from that point, um, I should say, a lot of the work that we're doing is around observing people in the museum space. So we'll strap cameras to them, we'll give them audio recorders, they'll narrate their experience, we'll ask them to draw what the experience has been like to try and understand what that, what that actually feels like and what they need, what they're seeing, what matters most to them. And when we look at that data, there are two key factors, not surprisingly, that have a big uh, impact on how they are able to use and navigate those places for curiosity. And those are, number one, how closely connected they are to the knowledge and topic. So if you're a super fan, if you're studying something, and you're really, really connected, you'll have a different experience than somebody who basically was a novice. Or, and this won't be surprising to a UX designer, how easily you can use that space. And that's often to do with how often somebody uses a place like a museum or is used to going into places that are physically tentatively very grand, how comfortable they are at that moment. So uh, if they, what we start to see is that um, those two factors play out in different ways. Now, I've kind of broken this down into um, like three very big brutal groups. Um, some of the, if you're a museum practitioner, you might be slightly guessed at how uh, bold I'm being about some of these statements. But there are three kind of stereotypical personas that we often see in our work. So, I'm going to start with your super users. So if, if you're, a, if you're a, a designer of an object or product, you might be used to this idea of somebody who's going to really, really use your stuff. And basically, uh, in museum context, that's uh, generally about 4% of the population goes to a museum uh, once a month, a museum or gallery once a month. So those are real super users. They know how that place and space works. And they tend to be um, confident in both uh, cultural knowledge in terms of they don't just know about history, but they may know about arts or something around that. And so they have a, a, a really good understanding of how the museum space works. They, uh, I'll give you a good example. We worked with the V&A and they wanted to know what was needed in that welcome moment. As people go over the threshold, what was needed before they entered the gallery space? And one of our super users um, walked into that museum and we kind of recruited them before. We gave them an audio recorder. We said to them, okay, just navigate this place how you feel like. And he walked in, he walked straight up to the information desk and said, hi, I'd like to know where I can find the Georgian glass. And the, the information desk kept on the computer and they told him where to go. And he went directly to it. He didn't get distracted by anything else. He went to the Georgian glass. He had an absolute ball in front of the Georgian glass, if you can imagine. <laughs> So, uh, because he loved the Georgian period, he understood the context of those objects, he understood what he was looking like, and for him, the novel experience that he was having, the moment of curiosity was seeing that physical object in that space. 
everything else was super easy for him. He didn't have to think about it. He just knew automatically where that thing was. It's like when you're in the kitchen and you kind of, you know where to put your hand because the, the spoon's always there or if somebody moves it, it's not there. But you try and go for it anyway. And we also saw that in uh, an organisation. In fact, I'm going to show you. As you can see, my slides are slightly ad hoc. I'm trying to use them, but not doing so well. This is... Uh, this is, looks like a very ordinary building in Boston. It's the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And at the moment, it's one of my favorite places. So Isabella Stewart Gardner, she, uh, she buys this beautiful house and then starts to collect it and build a museum there from scratch herself. Uh, she was incredibly wily. If you get a chance to read up on her, she's an amazing character. Imagine this is kind of, I think it's mid 1800s And by hook or by crook, she fills the whole place with art. And then on her, in her will, she says to the people, oh, she also manages to turn it into a Venetian palace inside. <laughs> uh, and she, turned, she gives it to the people of Boston, and she says, I'm putting it in your trust. You cannot change anything about this space. It's a historic museum because there's no labels. There's crappy lighting. The way that the, the uh, objects are maintained is incredibly difficult. And she said, don't touch a thing, else it all goes to the Massachusetts University. So <laughs> the museum people there at the moment are in like uh, they're in like stasis animation, uh, like and you know suspended animation with it, with it. And what you have is, of course, from from this place, it doesn't look particularly fascinating. But if you know what's inside, it's an amazing place to go to. So our super users can, uh, tend to be of a certain age and uh, a certain type of person in Boston. They know where to park because the whole thing is does that like. You know, it's not modern design, so it's really hard to queue in. It's really hard to get tickets. Uh, you need to know where to park. The food, the food place is, is really um, hard to get into because it's so small. They use the place like it's their own. They know exactly where everything should be, and they find it really, really easy to use that space. First-time visitors come through, and they have this moment of, wow. But up until that point, it's been really, really hard work. And so what the research started to show was how exhausted people got really, really quickly into this bit, which is the fun bit. Like, this is the bit that everybody wants to spend time in. Um, but also, if you're coming as a first-time visitor or, or a, a novice visitor, it's really hard to understand it as a space. Because is it a cat? Like, <laughs> when, we, when we spoke to people, they're kind of going around, and they're basically doing what we all do when we go to someone's house and looking at objects and thinking, where's that from? How did you get hold of that? Ooh, what? Oh, look, why is this here? Why is that? And it's actually a museum. It's not, it's not meant to be. Uh, they also hold yoga classes and stuff. Can you imagine having to access this space? Choral concerts, it's brilliant. Um, so you, that is your super user group. They're able to physically use that space. And that opportunity for curiosity is defined and shaped by their ability to do that. The second and middle group, uh, I'm guessing might be quite a few people recognise this in this room as well. It's a group of people who probably go to museums on a regular basis. It's not something that they're doing all the time, but if there's something good on, they'll go and see it. Uh, if they are in a, a city, there's more than likely to go to a museum that's there, that kind of idea. They're slightly more confident. But this group don't tend to have as, as wider and deeper knowledge, perhaps, as those super users, because they're not consuming culture in the same way. And in fact, uh, kind of 
what they enjoy tend to enjoy doing is hurling themselves into a museum experience and figuring it out as they go along because they can do that. They feel confident enough in that space to kind of understand it. And also they have probably a few more hooks. So if we, uh, this idea of Velcro is one that I can't kind of let go of, but basically if you imagine every cultural thing you kind of come into contact with as an object or a story or something, you create a little hook onto yourself. And as you walk through a museum or gallery, each object that you're seeing has little loops. And if you have a story that clicks onto that loop and you can tell that it's there, you'll get stuck to it and you can engage. Most, most super fans are, are walking around like head to toe in hooks, basically, like they're human Velcro. <laughs> a lot of people are walking around with quite a few hooks on them. And what you'll tend to see is that group of people will be able to spot something that is recognizable to them. And it's a serendipitous activity. They're kind of wandering around. They'll be like, oh, that's really nice. Somewhere like the V&A, this is like the maximum opportunity for serendipity. Because <laughs> no one gets the V&A with a plan. So, you, so everybody's kind of walking across and going, oh, China. And then you're like, oh, fashion. And then it's like, oh, Iron Railings. <laughs> uh, niche audience, oh, Iron Railings. Um, but basically, they'll, they'll be looking through different experiences. And they'll, you basically get that moment where they're incredibly... Uh, uh, pleased that they found something, but the exhaustion of trying to find something means that they get very tired very quickly and they slow down. And then you'll see the museum march, which is just like slowly walking through galleries, glazed eyes. The active engagement that everybody was hoping for and we saw with objects that we love is turns really passive and they, they're starting to slow down. And when we talk to them, they talk about kind of getting slightly tired at that idea of looking, judging deciding to read more to see if it is what they think it is, and then finally um, uh, moving on. And that kind of repetitive activity of very heavy focus on visual stimulus can get really exhausting and tiring for them. And then we come to our other group. Now, this is, uh, I'm calling these a novice group. Um, there's various levels of novice. We do a lot of work where we invite audiences in who maybe, so we did a project with Tate recently and, and we invited audiences in who wouldn't normally come to the museum. They're open to uh, art, but they've never come across Tate or it's not been something that they really aspired to. And we wanted to understand what that experience felt like for them. Most, most people go to, so I think I'm gonna give you a figure here. 78% of people go to a museum uh, two times or less in a year in the UK. That's, the, that's a huge, huge percentage of people who are not going. That's a huge percent of people who are novice users. And those users, I totally recognize it because even as somebody who works in a museum, I often am that person as well, where they'll kind of focus very much on that moment of getting to the museum or gallery. So they'll focus very much on, like, how do I get there? How much is it going to cost? What do I do when I get there? So what happens when I get there? And they'll focus on that moment. And then they get through the threshold. And a bit like when you get to the airport and you get past uh, like check-in and you start to go, oh, yeah, I've got two hours here. What am I going to do with myself? Then you start to see that that group in particular have that planning moment, that moment of like, oh, what do I do now in the actual physical space? And quite often they're not used to a museum environment, so they don't know what the tools are to ask for. They don't know how these places are navigated. The work with the National Gallery, one of the interesting elements of that for me, we were working with a wayfinding company, was the, the moment where um, someone described 
The National Gallery, so it goes from 1200s to uh, the mid-1800s to their collection. Basically, someone called the 1200s stuff flat old Jesus stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and the Impressionist stuff, the good stuff. And so if you imagine, if you walk in there and it says 1200s, 1400s, 1600s, you have no mechanism for making those decisions. That kind of constant friction and fear of going in the wrong place, making a crappy use of your time while you're there because you've booked in 50 other places to go while you're in the city and you've only got two hours while you're here, has a real cognitive problem for people. And what you see is, again, that they will they don't know how to find things or to be curious about. They don't know how to kind of shape that experience in a way that really can make the most of what they're interested in. Okay. We talk a lot about the idea of friction and the impact that that friction of experience has had on people's ability to actively engage with things. Museums, like a lot of things, are designed by superfans for superfans. If you don't know who your audience is, you start to use your own experience. And if you use your experience, you're only going to attract and make something that is useful for people who are just like you. And so a lot of our work is around giving those audiences a voice within the space, but also helping people to design something that doesn't look like it's something for them. And I'm not suggesting that people walk in, that, that those, design, those people who design those experiences are doing that because they want to exclude other people. That is very often an aspiration that everybody should be welcome to these things. But just by giving people access and those invitations to curiosity being designed in a certain way, it minimizes who can access them. The language that people use, the, 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 where, the, the location that things are placed in are all having a, a huge impact. So if you can imagine kind of being in those different museums' experiences, I personally have been in them. Uh, I've been that kind of super specialist who knows exactly where to go, both in life and in, in those kind of cultural contexts. But also, I've, I've also been that kind of person who's arrived something and had that feeling of shame. Like one of the things that we hear a lot from people who are, are um, uh, within that kind of novice group is they don't feel that the museum's done a crappy job of designing the space. They just feel shame that they didn't do their homework. They feel shame that they didn't know about the art and that they should have really found out about it or they should have listened in class, you know, 30 years ago. There's a real feeling there that they did something wrong rather than that the, the, the space itself is designed not for them. So, um, kind of where I want to flip this to is how can you use some of those observations of other people and that <coughs> empathy for being in those situations in order to use it to frame your own curiosity to when you need to have that moment of curiosity during a particular project, that it's shaped in a way that you yourself can build upon. Um, so, heartily skipping through other slides that I created. I just put, Alison and I sometimes think that's the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> what you need to do with that museum is. <laughs> open to new experiences you need to feel safe and confident think back to that novice experience you are in that space and you need to feel welcome and you need to feel 
like you're meant to be there and that you can do this and that there is stuff in there for you. Um, so in mu museum terms, actually, what that is is giving people, people permission to feel it's okay not to know stuff. And there is very these are places of curiosity that do not acknowledge that when you walk in that space, you might not know what's in there already. Offer reassurance that people, uh, and the idea of, uh, we talk a lot about offering people reassurance and offering them the right tools at the right time. Interesting for museums, we're working with physical space, so actually creating a moment where people can actually say, okay, I'm ready to be curious now, needs to happen in the right place. If you look at the physical spaces, a lot of these old Victorian buildings were not designed for that moment. They were designed to like literally kick you straight into galleries. There was something special about being able to go to the National Gallery and see the Van Gogh painting when literally you were stood feeding pigeons in Trafalgar Square three minutes ago. That is something that's been very important about our culture. But it also means uh, it is a really challenging moment if you're not expecting to see a Van Gogh's painting three minutes off Trafalgar Square. My favourite example of this is uh, uh, the Chicago Philharmonic Orchestra. And they did a, a really interesting thing. They, um, they used data to understand who that audience was. And they captured, when people bought tickets, they captured first-time people. And when they saw that first-time person had entered the space, on the tablets for the visitor assistants, they would, they would basically it'd be like, 10-4, Mindy Green is in the space, she's a first-time visitor. She's on seat 23A. That sounds very sinister. It wasn't like that at all. It just literally popped up. <laughs> so they would, they'd go to 20, 23A and say, oh, you've booked a ticket that, that's really cheap. Really cheap. And you've booked a ticket that's in a difficult situation, a difficult place, you can't see. Because that person, it was their first time visit. They were trying to manage risk by, you know, would they like the piece of music, that kind of thing. So they tended to buy really cheap tickets. And they were in places with like short leg room. They'd go over to that person who was a first-time person and say, come on, let's go to a, a seat where we've got a free seat down the front, let's go, go into that seat. And they'd put them into a seat that was a better experience. They'd build their confidence in that moment, and they'd feel like, we know you're a first-time visitor, and don't worry about it, we've got you covered. That, what a compelling moment that is. I think for, for as a practitioner, kind of, and for your own work, perhaps, taking that forward, I think... Um, like, as a practitioner, you, you tend to find yourself in those moments outside of your comfort zone. And kind of that feeling of overwhelmness at, at the task that you're taking on. So um, one, of the, one of the things you might like to do is think about if you were observing that moment in someone else, what would the tools and processes be that you would set up for that person to get out of that hole? What would you set to give them reassurance that it's okay? It could be a list of people that you call. It could be a... To a, a a group of processes that you've set in place to kind of think, comb yourself through that experience and kind of uh, think moment by moment what you need to do. Um, and I, uh, the other thing to, to kind of uh, take at that, that moment is really understand uh, what is the real risk that you're actually facing? What, what does it really feel like? What is that fear? Because, you know, it's been said quite a lot over the last couple of years, we're all winging it. 
nobody really knows what they're doing. <laughs> you know, so the fact is, is kind of that, that moment of, of really embrace that moment of fear and, and kind of feel it. Because I think one of my own experiences is I can kind of put it away. And what it does is it closes me down from listening and understanding to what's actually needed to be done. The next one, the idea of to focus your curiosity effectively, you need the right question, not the right answer. Um, quite often we're entering into uh, briefs where someone has defined both the, the starting point and the end point of the brief. I, have, I want to solve this problem and I want to do it this way. Or if you're an agency, quite a lot of the, um, the, the problems, uh, you've got to pitch a solution before you've even had a chance really to explore the issue, to understand what is underneath it. If you find a brief where they say, we just have a question, we just need you to help us with the answer, snatch it with both hands because they are a client to keep. <laughs> um, and I think that we kind of, we, there, is a, there is a fear when you're buying something that you want to know what you're buying. I totally understand that. But I think for, for uh, an organization to kind of be able to give people that space and that opportunity to kind of create and find a solution is a really hard area to navigate. In terms of uh, what that means, in terms of uh, where we see issues here, is that um, audiences quite often don't feel that they've got a question until the right moment. So quite often, the idea of having the right question needs to be something that feels relevant to them, but also is, in, um, uh, is achievable. So kind of keeping those ideas of relevance and achievable, I think the idea of kind of shaping this, um, this moment, really, what we see is that they don't have a question that is relevant or achievable to them. They don't know what they don't know. And so somebody, as they walk through the door, someone will say, can I help you? What are you looking for today? And they're like, oh, nothing. The toilet pretty much is the standard issue. Uh, uh, or the cloakroom. And then they'll get into the museum space, and it's kind of like 20 minutes in, 30 minutes in, before they start to go, oh, there might be something in here that's relevant to me. Actually, if I could find that quickly, that would be a really good thing. There's nobody there to help them. So that idea of finding something that's relevant, but also achievable in terms of the question is very important. This idea of there's always a moment when the most effective thing to do is to do something else. Um, that aspect of curiosity, when you're in that moment of digging and digging and digging, there's two things happening. You're taking in lots of information, but you're also tiring yourself out. And there becomes a moment that you have to stop Sometimes that you're reluctant to stop because you don't feel you've got the answer yet, and sometimes you're reluctant to stop because you're absolutely uh, sure that you'll never get there. And one of the things that we see uh, for, for visitors, particularly those uh, novice visitors, is they'll try to chip, bite off the whole museum in one fell swoop. They'll like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the entire Met in two hours. <laughs> I've actually attempted that. <laughs> whilst working with the Met, I was that idiot. Like I, like, I know that I'm conscious incompetence at every stage. And so basically, you, there is a moment where actually what you see in the museum visit, we talked, I talked about that moment of like stepping through and people repeatedly feeling that same sensory, sensory visual experience. So in museum 
in museum terms, we, we look at installing different stimuli. We look at creating lean back instead of lean in moments. We look at creating passive experiences instead of active experiences to kind of create that journey where people can rest, process, reflect. Doing that in your own work is sometimes really difficult when the client is on the, on the phone or the, the, your boss is asking you where something is. It's to say, actually, the best moment right now is to move away from something. We all know that, that is, you, there is a danger there that you then don't go back to it. <laughs> but, but, the most, but what we see in a museum terms is there is a chance for people to refresh themselves and come back to be active about it. So um, those are kind of my three top tips. So just to kind of go back, back what I've been talking about, the idea is that as humans, we are all curious. That is one of our intrinsic things that we have to do. But in order to use it usefully, we have to take care of it and shape it in a way that we can exploit it at the right time and make good use of it. Um, and that, to me, that one of the three key things that we see in terms of doing that in the physical environment is to create a safe space for people, either others and your, or yourselves, to feel vulnerable, um, to allow them to build confidence and skills and allow them to feel like it's okay to fail. Focus the question, the next one is focus the question and really uh, create a safe space to explore into. That idea of asking the right question and not the right answer, the idea of having um, something that is relevant to you, that is achievable, and the edge of that sandpit being those kind of pointers will give you a safe place to uh, play in, but also give you, keep you motivated at, at the most challenging time. And finally, novel experiences, that idea of having something new to experience constantly is, is an amazing opportunity. It fills us with joy and it brings a great uh, deal to us, but it can be overused. And at that time, Look at how you can approach something differently and come at it from a different angle. <laughs> and that's your lot. Thank you to Lindsay Green for such a great talk. And of course, thank you for listening. You can learn more about Frankly Green and Web by visiting franklygreenweb.com. That's web with two Bs. And you can subscribe to the Creative Mornings Sheffield podcast on Apple Podcasts or in any other podcast app too. You can visit creativemornings.com slash cities slash SHD or follow us on Twitter at CM underscore Sheffield. <laughs>